Hello and welcome to episode six of Three Shaved Heads. So we're here for another week. Hello, Sam. Hello, Keith. How are you? Hello. Very well, thank you. Good, thanks. Very good, very good. I've had an absolutely shattering week, I have no, to say. No, we didn't ask you. Well, <laughs> all right. Well, you tell me. You how tell are me you, how you're... Graham? How are you? Thank, thank you. Thank you. I'm. Have you had a hard week? It's been a hard week. It oh. has been a hard week. I've had a lot going on. But I felt it was only right to ask you how your week was first. That's very kind of you. <laughs> we still don't care about your week. Um. So, yes, so today um, we've got a special guest on. Hi, Daphne. How are you? Hello, I'm good. How are you? Very good. And we are very excited. We're very excited about this because I think you were the furthest guest we've ever had on the show. <laughs> we've yes. gone international here, haven't we? This is amazing. We, we, we totally have. I mean, I, I was excited when I looked at the podcast stats and I saw someone in Iran looking at our podcast or listening to our podcast. But you've, you're even further. <laughs> You're even further than that. So I'm, yeah, very ecstatic about this. But um, yeah, so do you, do you want to introduce yourself, Daphne? Sure. Um, so I'm Daphne Bourne. I am um, by way of Sydney, Australia. However, I know my accent is probably a little bit confusing. Um, so I'm originally from the States. And um, I've just come back from two years um in a big bank in New York City, which um, unfortunately had to come to a um, early close because of COVID, sadly. So I'm back mm. in Australia, a, a much safer and healthier place than Brooklyn, New York. Mm. And um, yeah, I was I was doing design operations um, over there, which was an awesome role. And um, I can tell you all about it. Um, and now I've got a new job. So I'm kind of like you, Graham, where I'm just exhausted after um the first few weeks of work for sure yeah absolutely it does take it out of you when you are starting a new role mm. got so much so much to learn so many people to meet <laughs> uh i think i've been back to be back in meetings for the last two weeks uh just meeting people and uh yeah yes. it was a lot a lot of note taking we're, and we're making it even even harder for you, Daphne, by, by uh, expecting you to get up at 5.30 a.m. <laughs> after a tough couple of weeks. No, it's okay. I, I was doing New York hours before when I first got back to Sydney, which was just crushing me. So getting up oh, for like me. 2 a.m. leadership meetings and yeah, it just wasn't sustainable. Wow. So 5.30 is, is not too bad. To be honest, I, I imagine the podcast will make you immeasurably famous uh, and you, you'll, you'll never need to work again. Uh, so it's probably going to be worth it. That was my goal. <laughs> I mean, the reach of our podcast is impressing me every week. So, uh, so But great. Um, we I spoke to Daphne, um, when was it? A few weeks ago now, um, at least probably maybe a month ago. And uh, we immediately had some quite exciting conversations about design ops and uh, some of your experiences um so you know, it'll be interesting to to get into that and talk a little bit more um but before we do we're missing something guys we're missing our drinks so i'm Sam, certainly missing my drinks yeah i know you are i think you should tell <laughs> listeners why you are missing your no, drink no i'm gonna i'm gonna save that um but i have a beer tonight uh, i have you? um Brewdog Nanny State, which is an uh, alcohol-free beer. Yes. Um, it's terrible in every way, uh, so let's move on. <laughs> um, what, what are Fair you drinking? Enough. Me. Um, so in honour of Daphne, um, I've got a breakfast stout. Aww. Oh, because it's yeah, breakfast. Very nah. good. Actually, yeah. I could argue that mine is because it's a very hoppy ale. Oh. <laughs> this yeah. is just gonna get go it? on and on do you get it i love it yeah we, i think i've got it yeah <laughs> i'm sorry i'm just gonna i'm gonna mute now okay <laughs> i actually haven't tried mine yet and i'll try it whilst uh keith talks about his beer how what's what are you on to uh tonight i've keith? got a beer that is appropriate for two different reasons the first one being that uh, it's by Yeasty Boys, who have breweries in both the UK and Australia, uh, New Zealand as well, but we won't talk about them. Yeah. Um, but secondly, 
uh, listeners will know that there's been an awful lot of tea drinking on this podcast, mostly from Sam. So in honour of Sam's tea drinking, I have an Earl Grey IPA. Very nice. And it's called mm. it's called Gunamata. And the tasting notes are, it's boldly floral, much like your granny's bedroom. Uh, can I just say, there's a Gunamata Bay just down the street from me. Oh, so really? you're hitting home. That's amazing. Wow. I love that. Yeah. Excellent. See, look, so... this is the effort we put in for our amazing <laughs> guests. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna open it and give it a try. Let's have a let's have a go. You're such a poser. Yeah, that's that's nice. It's six point five percent. It's not it's a strong beer. <laughs> and it's got those floral notes that you get in Earl Grey. Yes, and your granny's bedroom. <laughs> Lovely. Lovely. <laughs> it's a good beer. I like that. I gave that about about four, I reckon. But it's by right. the Yeasty Boys. Is that yeah, right? That's right, Yeasty Boys. Again, the Beastie Boys, one of my all-time favorites. And I got to see them in Brooklyn. So I feel oh. like, yeah, I feel like you guys have gone all out today. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Is this all about me or what? <laughs> it, it, yes, for one De- night, definitely. it's all about you. <laughs> um, so, Daphne, what, what are you drinking tonight? All right. Well... I know you can't see my mug, but I'm drinking out of my lucky Manchester property mug that I got when I spoke at the Design Ops Summit a few years ago in Manchester. And I'm drinking, so I thought I'd go really like property here. So I'm drinking a Taylor's of Harrogate Yorkshire tea. It says proper black tea on the front. So I feel like that's legit. And it's actually got, you know, the like the HRH stamp of approval at the top too. So I'm not oh, messing wow. around. Yeah. Yeah. You've gone all, gone all Brit on this. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fantastic. Respect. Yeah. Respect <laughs> for that. Fantastic. So cool. We've, we've got the drinks out of the way. So, so Daphne, um, the, the reason we had such a, such an exciting conversation was around design ops. And it's, it's one of those terms, which I see bounded around quite a lot in job specs and, on yes. blogs and on LinkedIn posts, and I I'll be honest, I didn't really know what it meant. Mm-hmm. So, c- c- can you tell listeners you probably the same as me? Maybe they, maybe all all of them know it, and I don't. But can you tell people what design ops is? Sure. Um, gosh, this is where your editing is probably going to come into play because I'm sure there's a, a faster way of saying this, but it's <laughs> it's the practice of I guess supporting um, design teams, whether it be through process or efficiencies or even just the health of the team. Um, Mm. So it can also be advocating or evangelizing for design within um, a big corporate structure. So sometimes a design operations manager can can also be the glue within um, a product design org that may not really understand the function or the practice of design and kind of just think of them as painting pretty pictures or putting a button on this, as we used to say. So design ops can also um, really help um, sell in the practice all the way up through to, you know, your heads of products or, or even your executive levels, um, because they kind of bring in that, um, I guess, that business knowledge to the design practice and, and help them kind of um, get a seat at the table. And, and that's probably one of my favorite parts of design ops. But um, our team was, was pretty... Um, was a pretty good example of kind of a, a well-rounded design operations function where we had um, people that looked after the people ops side, which is, you know, like your talent management or performance management. So making sure that your designers were developing in their careers, um, that they were happy in their roles, that they understood what their roles were. Also that we had like a healthy recruitment process. So we had some consistencies around hiring. Um, we also had um a function that looked after your design spaces. So making sure that designers had the right tools, um, that they had spaces for collaboration, that they had just space in general, um, you know, pre COVID um, making sure that the offices had um, the right sort of fit outs or, or places for your, your introverts to go away and, and, and work were also really important as to, um, bringing together the the cross-functional team and having a space for design to, to whiteboard or, um, or to showcase work. And, um, and then my area, which was 
mainly around kind of portfolio management or, or process. So a lot of times um, we would be focusing on things like agile transformation. So helping the design team use tools that could connect them back to the rest of the business so that they weren't working in a silo. And by tools, I mean things like the dreaded JIRA <laughs> or Confluence mm. um, or... What or wait- do you mean? JIRA is the best <laughs> tool ever. <laughs> I will die on this hill. <laughs> Sorry, I carry know. on, please. <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. It's it's a hard sell, but it's there's a lot of a lot of pluses to to getting design into Jira. And I could talk about that for days. Um, so it's really it's really this understanding of um, what the design team needs to function at their best, mm. and to also kind of reduce the noise for them to just get on and and design the best way that they can. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a role that, um, I've seen in, or I've held in previous organizations that have kind of just called me a design manager, which can Mm. also be a little bit confusing because sometimes design managers are, um, well, most of the time they're expected to still create or deliver artifacts or, um, wireframe and, and design as well as kind of keep the wheels on operationally. So helping track and plan and prioritize the work. Um, while also being a designer themselves. So um, adding in the operations part to the title really kind of helps distinguish between the two. Um, And it was only until I went to Capital One where I I did see that um, design operations as a proper practice that was really, um, I guess, uh, defined separately away from that design manager role. Mm. So, so would you say that design ops is kind of the opposite of the old agency model? Yes, um, it is. And I think it's, it's born out of the era of when big corporates decided that they needed an in-house design function. And um, you'll remember the days of like Fjord going into Accenture. Um, Capital One is, is another example where they bought Adaptive Path. Um, which was a, a huge and, and very famous UX firm in San Francisco. Um, and they kind of just gobble up these um, really well-known, well-respected d- design organizations. And you can't just sort of plug and play them in there. You need to sort of help them um, blend into the business and give them sort of those shared languages so that they can work effectively with engineering, with business analytics um, and with product whom they may not have been working closely with because they've been in that studio environment where you're yeah. maybe a little bit more protected. Siloed. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think there are, I guess, a lot of preconceptions about working with other, other teams. And of course, this podcast is all about cross-functional working. What were some of the sort of big challenges you had on, on getting those teams to kind of partner with each other? Oh, um, (laughs) that's a big, that's probably a book for you, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. No, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite things to talk about because, um, it was one of my greatest learnings at Capital One, which was, um, Mm. sort of starting in the role. I was just excited to understand almost like if I could take the roof off the top of the building, how did work come in and flow through the business? Right. So you know, who briefed in who, was it just somebody chatting over Slack um, to a designer and that was it? There was, you know, just a quick little, hey, can you look at this screen for me type of thing? Or was it sophisticated and had a prioritization process and went through a pipeline framework and and things like that? So I, I spent the first few weeks really trying to understand our product partners listening to sort of their their feedback about how design was working for them or how it wasn't working for them, um, learning from our engineering teams, if I was allowed to talk to them. Uh, they were very protective. <laughs> <species>. <laughs> um, and I spent a lot of time looking outward because I thought, well, this design team I'm coming into of about 85 people, you know, these, these guys are like ex-adaptive path. Like they know what they're doing. Oh my gosh, you know, I don't, I don't need to come mm-hmm. in here and kind of, show them the double diamond framework, right? Um, So I naively, yeah, just expected them to sort of have this kind of um, 
I guess relationship already sort of cemented it um, because they were, they were so impressive to me and they were um, they, they had this legacy and I kind of um, just, just made an assumption <laughs> which is wrong. And um, what I did was I spent a lot of time evangelizing the design team back into these business partners or these engineering partners that I was talking to who were saying, look, you know, we don't, we don't really know what design's up to. And sometimes they can be a blocker and they're not really part of our process. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how to engage with them or when to engage with them. So we kind of just leave them to it. And um, so they had this really kind of strained distant relationship. And I was like, yes, this is, this is, this is what I'm good at. Like this is, I love bringing these, this three-legged stool together, right? Like the, the leg of engineering, the leg of product and the leg of design and kind of building this, um, this sturdy stool to work together. So here was my opportunity, right? And, um, and I did, and I worked with this one particular product manager to build a workshop, um, to start prioritizing some work that was coming in for the next quarter. And they thought, let's get design in the room. You know, they can, they can help us start doing some design um, thinking that you keep saying that they could do, you know, here I was like trying to evangelize the design process and, Oh, we do user research and prototyping and and all this good stuff that um, actually they hadn't been doing. So what happened was they spent a lot of time getting the right people in the room, um, doing all this great, work, getting the data ready, um, kind of doing their homework. And they invited design to the table, which was great. And I was in there and they brought in their, um, their particular designers. So a, a senior, senior UXer and a, and a visual designer. And once it was kind of design's turn to talk or to facilitate or to sort of jump in and, and kind of lead the problem solving, they, they just weren't ready. They, they didn't have they weren't on the same page themselves, the, the, the design team. Um, they, they kind of had their own ways of doing it, but it wasn't, uh, they weren't sort of singing from the same hymn sheet. You know, mm. they, they didn't have this cohesive language to sort of go in and say, right team, this is what we need. This is where we're going to start. Um, it was a really disparate, disconnected experience. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't, I didn't even look inward and realize we weren't ready, you know, like we, we weren't, we didn't have the language. We didn't have a a seamless process or it doesn't have to be a perfect process. We just didn't have something to fall back on to say, this is how we work, or these are the first Mm -hmm. steps that we traditionally take Mr. Product Owner. Um, And it was a real moment for me to realize um, you need to make sure that your design team is ready for those moments where you're asserting them in or um, negotiating them into the into the process so how how does the role differ then from uh, a project manager's role so i can think in roles in the past where i've worked some of the things you've mentioned we i've relied on a project manager to to do or to help out with when working on a particular product or project so where's the difference what's the difference between um, design ops and project management I think you do get a lot of project managers coming into design ops um, because they do have that sort of discipline or that structure about them. So they understand how to um, plan, track work, break down work, understand requirements, and they can help guide the design team in that way. So that's absolutely um, a natural thing to think of that. It sounds like project management. Mm -hmm. I think where design operations can kind of differ is you also do get a lot of designers that come into that role because they just love systems or they love um, the efficiencies or they love um, scaling teams. So maybe they're looking at how to build the best design team and and how to sort of make the best skills work together. Um, they also might come in with a better understanding of the design process so that they can help build those shared languages like I was just talking about. So they understand the double diamond. They understand, um, I guess, the things that designers need to mm. be able to work at their best. So they sort of have more of that empathy when they're coming from the design background. Not that project management doesn't. I mean, if you look at my background, it's very varied, coming more from like 
you know, your suit side of, of the agency roles. Yeah. Um, maybe those old traffic managers, kind of production managers, um, that, that type of coordinator type of role really suits kind of a design operations function. Um, mm. But I think they have more of that kind of understanding of what designers actually really need in those spaces where they are either siloed because they're in a product design organization in an in-house um, situation where, you know, maybe they need Macs, um, maybe they need um, big plotter printers or they need mural or they need, um, they don't want to work in Jira. They want to work in Trello and you need to be able to kind of explain why. So I think having the why for the design um, helps a lot in that role for sure. It's, it's, it's interesting. I think you touched on the word language. And I think often when you just throw these teams together and they haven't been working together for a long time, mm. they, they, they actually don't communicate with the same words and they can't understand each other. The labels, the terminology, the things that they are, um, their, their concerns, their pain points, they're so diverse, so different. And bridging that is, for me, the biggest challenge trying to bring people in alignment so they are sharing the same goals so that they are working together and using the same language and it's such a big challenge so absolute respect for you for taking on this that sort of mm -hmm. challenge um it's it's one of the hardest things to achieve what i'm kind of interested in because I, I know adaptive path fairly well i went to a, a couple of their conferences uh, in amsterdam and i, I was worried by that agency they were ideologically um, probably the most perfect design agency I've come across. Um, I wonder how the implementation of some of those ideals in Capital One, given that they acquired Adaptive Path, did they did they kind of land and did they work in an environment which is probably fraught with hierarchy and and politics, etc.? How did how did it land and did it did it work effectively? Um, to be fair, I sort of came in <clears throat> maybe about two years after that whole acquisition. Um, and they were a very, they had a very strong culture that um, was absolutely respected and, um, and welcomed into the business, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, you know, if I was out in the San Francisco team, um, they, they may not have felt the, the integration as much. Um, so Capital One's headquarters is in Virginia. And I worked yep. in our New York office. We had a Chicago office. We had a Plano, Texas. And Adaptive Path was mainly based out of um, San Francisco. And they really had kind of their own space and, um, and, and amazing, beautiful offices and, and really this kind of um, community that everybody wanted to be involved in. So they were welcomed. Um, we, we, I have to say, we imploded with talent because... People wanted to work with all these adaptive path folk, right? So Capital One grew from oh, maybe 300 odd, 400 odd designers to they're now a 600 odd design org. Um, right. They're very large. And I think adaptive path was able to shine. Um, I think their their systems and their tools and um, and their methods and you know Jesse James Garrett um, actually have a photo of me singing karaoke with him on like my third day there and I feel like it was a rock star moment um, and you know they they did lead a lot of how design was going to function at Capital One so they weren't sort of off in a corner they they really were building. Um, the right way to to have this design practice within the, the company. Um, I don't think we got maybe high up enough in that C-suite that I, I kind of thought we were when I joined. You know, everybody says, oh, it's it's now a design-led company. And I thought, okay, cool, wow. So, you know, we're, we must have a seat at that kind of C-suite executive level. We didn't really get that far. Um, mm. we, we They did really infiltrate the company to the point where, in Capital One's onboarding, where um, you know you have like bank tellers and um, and folks in security systems and um, all sorts of different roles, part of the onboarding had a design thinking um, exercise, which blew me away. I was like, oh wow, wow. 
you know, learning about the company meant you actually had to learn it, what design thinking was and what that skill was. So that to me signaled a lot of success with adaptive paths, um, adaptive paths uh, merger for sure. So you did sort of see it um, trickle in, but they, they, um, I, I wouldn't, oh, so hard to say because they, they definitely didn't last as long as I, I thought they, I think they made it kind of like a good three years there. Mm. And, um, and the likes of Kristen Skinner, who wrote the book design for design orgs, which is like my Bible and I carry it everywhere and reference it mm. all the time. And I encourage anybody to go out and get it. Um, she was the one that built the design operations function at Capital One. And I unfortunately didn't get time with her there. Our times did not cross over and she came from adaptive path and um, so some of those real legacy folks didn't really stay um, on as long as I, I wish they could have. And I know Jesse kind of finished up uh, maybe mid to the end of last year. So they got a good four or five years in there. Um, but pretty it, good, yeah. it is pretty good. <clears throat> but I will say, you know, that moment that I was explaining to you earlier, that story, I sort of would have thought our product partners, our engineering partners, maybe would have kind of understood design a little bit more at that point. Um, mm. And you know what, that could have just been because it's such a big company and I was only in one line of business, which was the consumer bank. You know, there's AI and there's credit card and there's commercial. So there's so many different parts of, of Capital One's product org that um, didn't you know, maybe didn't have that same pain point. And maybe they, they already did have that language because their design team was smaller. I mean, we were about 80 to 85 people. So maybe having that traction within a product design organization of around 3,000 3, folk, um, that's engineers, BAs, um, product people, you know, maybe that's just too hard, that, that ratio. So mm. yeah, it could be a numbers game. So, yeah. so for a, for a, for a product product owner or product manager like me, if if um, if an organisation takes on uh, design ops, or or if I join an organisation that is already mm-hmm. you've got design ops uh, embedded, what what difference would I notice in terms of how I interact with a, a design team on a daily basis? I mean, I I think about typical things where I get frustrations like. Um, you know, user testing might be take, taking a little too long and it's getting a little too close to the start of a sprint where we're supposed to be working on a particular bit of mm-hmm. um, bit of functionality or feature, bit, things like that, mm-hmm. where this kind of flashpoints can happen. So what what difference would I notice if if, if next week I started a new job in a, in a design ops organisation? I think you would see things like, you would see design systems probably better down and, and um, in a healthier place. You would see um, design tools that are hopefully um, not disparate and all over the place. So people are hopefully working a little bit more efficiently and effectively and have better control of quality. Um, you might see intake of new projects being a little bit more succinct and more seamless. So hopefully mm-hmm. they would have that engagement model down. That's kind of what design ops um, helps with as well. So understanding um, what type of information you need. Maybe they would have helped create a ritual or a cadence for that ritual with that cross-functional team. That I spent a lot of time doing that. So maybe you would say, um, oh, wow, your, your design operations person um, you know, has you guys working in dual track agile. Um, does that work for, for your model? It, it depends on how embedded that design ops person is. Like for me, yeah. I would go into small teams of five to eight folk and spend about three months with them and kind of observe them for a few weeks, then give them a little bit of a diagnosis and then implement um, depending on whatever that design director wanted. So it could depend on what the pain point is. If for you, you're saying the the pain point is, um, you know, not really working to, I guess, the same um, speed or um, they're taking too long or they're not communicating properly why they're taking too long or not really giving you a better idea of what they need. 
um, <clears throat> that would that would really be where that design operations person could come in and either facilitate. Um, like we did a lot of pilot work where we would facilitate. Um, let's take this cross functional team and see how we can help them operate better. So we would do like a Jira pilot with them where we would say, let's for the next six weeks, um, all try to work on the same rituals. So design, you're going to come into grooming. Um, Engineers, you're going to come into, or maybe just the tech lead, you're going to come into um, some of our early discovery type of workshops and really try to involve each other in those kind of rituals or ceremonies. And then through that awkwardness of like, oh, this is good or this isn't good, sort of pulse check that. And then at the end, be able to say, right, okay, we don't need to have a stand up every day. Or tech, you don't need to come to these types of workshops. Or tech might say, oh my gosh, I love coming to those workshops. That's helped me so much. You need that sort of person in the middle, that vanilla, that kind of mediator to not be biased to any party and really see where those efficiencies lies and Mm. where those collaboration points are the most effective. So um, if you, yeah, I think you would be able to talk to that design operations person and say, look, here's where I'm struggling with design. How can we find a better place? Got it. And then they would be able to kind of um, hopefully pilot it, which I think is kind of the best way um, or maybe restructure some of their rituals or take a look at their process and kind of break it down um, understand, you know, what what user testing methods they're using. Is it something that's, you know, we could do something quicker, like use some quick online um, testing platform to get quick results, or um, or no, do they need this particular type of user testing, and why? So the design ops person can hopefully be able to translate those needs a bit better, or help the design team translate that better back to their product manager. So, so is it almost like having a scrum master or agile coach, but yeah. just for the designers? A little bit, a little bit. Okay. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I would say that they do kind of, they can function like that. And I am wary of saying that because a scrum master is, is, um, can definitely be way more specific than design ops. I find that mm. design ops can sometimes have to be this huge generalist, Um, with things like I was saying, you know, they have to get the design systems and the hiring and the agile and the, the prioritization. And, you know, they're trying to do all of those things. Um, whereas a scrub master can be a little bit more specific. So when, um, when you're kind of working with, uh, cross-functional teams, often the the thing that they, they often say about the design team is, oh, you're, you're, you're going to be in too late or you're going to be too early or, or something on those lines. And for me, when when a team says something like that, you're you're almost enforcing, knowingly or unknowingly, a waterfall way of working. Mm. And the, the lovely thing you were saying about there is how suddenly they will just chip in and come to those user testing sessions or come to those QA uh, sessions or whatever it is. They'll start to kind of join forces and start to observe the, the kind of activities they're doing. And for me, that is that sense of interest is really important that sense of oh how does this whole end-to-end process work Mm -hmm. um i think some of the big problems i've noticed in some of the organizations i've worked in is the allocation of designers or or developers sometimes product managers as well can be flat out you go from one stint of activity onto the next and then by the time you're working uh, on the next project the designers are working on another project so mm. you become fragmented and split up and all of that cohesion that you built up completely lost. If Have you got any kind of tips for people who may be in that kind of scenario but want to move towards um, design ops? What kind of things, where would you start for, for kind, of, kind of getting back into that kind of cross-functional way of working? Oh, that's a good one. I'm going to sip my tea for a minute. <laughs> while I contemplate. Please um, <laughs> no, tell tell me a bit more. So so when you say um hmm. so somebody who's wanting to go into design ops to sort of fix those pain points. Yeah, so so maybe someone's coming in, maybe they've been hired at a slightly more senior level than perhaps mm-hmm. the original team what is. 
mm-hmm. and they want to change and put into practice some of those design ops ways of working. Mm. But of course, the allocation profile of developers is that they will be working for a stint on this project. And as soon as they're done on that project, when they finish coding, they're on to the next one. Mm-hmm. And of course, that means that you're not you're not aligned. You're not working on the same things. Now, if you were to say to some of those, you know, for example, heads of engineering, say, well, hey, can we have the engineering person in early in some of our workshops and some of mm-hmm. our user testing? They would say, well, no, they're allocated on another project. That's right. This is, yes, this is like the age old thing. When are you allowed to bring in the right people at the right time? It is, it is a really tough one. I, um, I've had to sort of choose those moments wisely. Like I said, you know, in in previous companies, I haven't even been allowed to talk to the engineers. There's (laughs) like, you know, I'm only allowed to talk to the scrum master, um, or, or the tech lead. And I think you do have to be really purposeful with, when and why you're oh i hear santa because <laughs> i can hear the guy entering the room i yes. heard the bells <laughs> um i'm gonna jump in because i've been pretty quiet oh, yes sure but we should stop talking about um design slash product people being told that they're not allowed to talk to engineers <laughs> we should stop talking about that like it's normal because I think, yeah, in a lot of companies it is, but it's in a lot of companies it isn't. And I, mm. I'm willing to to suggest that probably if you look at the success of various companies in, in kind of modern technology metrics, the companies where the engineers are allowed to freely talk to the designers mm. and the product people and are allowed to get involved in all elements of kind of product discovery, investigations, ideation, very early stage stuff... Um, they produce better products. A hundred percent. Well, you, you've you've just built that empathy together, right? You're you can listen to what each other are on the hook for. You know, you can say, "Oh, okay, wow, I didn't realize engineering is on the hook for um, speed or security or fraud." I, I didn't even think about that what right you know as a designer Mm. you may not have that empathy or understanding for the things that are really driving them every day or the things that keep them up at night and and vice versa Um, but also i you know engineers have good ideas like i think that's that's underestimated in a lot of companies and when Mm. you kind of internally outsource your idea creation to just the product team and then maybe the product team outsources how it looks to just the design team, and then it gets bundled up and handed to the engineers to just build. That's yeah. the worst. That's the worst mm. thing you can do. Um, so here's okay then. So why are so many companies doing it that way? Um, I think it's a time to resources thing. At like if if I think about mm-hmm. why I wasn't allowed to include them, it was because they were so highly measured on their productivity that. Um, do you remember the pilot I was telling you about where we were trying to create this sort of little guinea pig cross-functional team and kind of measure how they worked in JIRA together and how they worked in their rituals? Mm-hmm. We had to really beg, almost borrow and steal um, a team and for this pilot and explain that th- the outcome of this and the goal of this is to work better together is to find a, a better way of working as a cross-functional team. And we're not going to disrupt the engineering process because that was the bit. So we had a, a large agile structure and the agile team was so worried that if design started kind of meddling <laughs> and these are stereotypes, but you know, they're exaggerated for the story. Um, don't, don't ever let that ruin a good story. Um, <laughs> if, if design sort of started meddling in the engineering process, it would throw out all their metrics. It would throw out all their reporting. And those metrics and reporting were so highly sensitive to the head of product and the head of engineering to understand their resource allocation and their funding that there was this real fear of um, people's time. So I think that's where it was born from in, in previous places. Okay. I've been, yeah. So I, I get it. And, and yeah, every engineering manager is on the hook for making sure they're not wasting money um, mm. and making sure they're 
you know, getting value for money. But I would argue that, and I know you're not arguing against this, but I, I think <laughs> I'd say, actually, if you're just using your engineers to write code, you're getting incredibly bad value for money out of those guys because mm. they're normally expensive. They're intelligent people. And I'd argue that f- from my experience, most of the kind of genuine innovation within ideas maybe not the concept of the ideas themselves but the innovation comes from those engineers and you can either choose to have it at the beginning when you're testing viability and and de-risking your ideas or you can choose to have it forced upon you at the end when the engineers come back and say well well, why didn't you do it like this yep um so i don't understand i don't understand why more companies don't think that way um Mm. but i guess that's the reason we've got this podcast right to change the world and you've you've kind of brought up one of my favorite words in um in this practice i have where i'm trying to bring that three-legged stool the the engineering the product and the design team to be able to co-create together as early in the process as possible because you're absolutely right everybody can add to the problem solving space to add to the um intent creation space. And there's a tool that um, I used at a a bank in Sydney and that I took to Capital One with me, which gave me a ton of cut through in this this really product-led organization that I was in, where product set the prioritization and and product set the work that we did and and engineering and design were kind of just told. Um, And to sort of change that model, I tried just literally implementing a lean canvas into the process. And I know everyone's going to go, oh, yeah, lean canvas, I know. But um, what we did was we said, okay, let's try to use a lean UX canvas right when we are getting our, um, you know, the product managers getting sort of their their next set of features or their next set of work, right? And we, we haven't defined it yet. And we kind of have an idea of, what those things need to do and who for and and why. Um, But let's all get into a room and, and start to kind of put some kind of framework around them. So we use the lean canvas in a way where early, early stages, we would bring in a tech lead, we'd bring in a designer and we'd bring in the product manager and maybe a BA. Um, And I would run an hour to an hour and a half long workshop with them where we go through the lean canvas together. And I wish I could have a visual, oh, damn you podcast, (laughs) Uh, shakes fist in air, Um, where we would step through the canvas in such a way where you'd start with the customer value proposition or the problem statement. And then your next step would be, and I would literally have a timer And I would spend the next five to 10 minutes mediating the team through the customer space. So what do we know about the customer? What are the problems we know already? Do we have some data? Do we have some user research that we've already done? Or do we have some old user research? And now we think, oh gosh, we need some new research. Um, Spend some time in there. That's kind of the the desirability section. And then move into the viability section which is a little bit more around, okay, what are the, what's the hypothesis that we have here? What are the things that we want to validate? And also what are the metrics that we need to measure? Are, are we trying to reduce the cost or are we trying to improve a conversion rate? Um, and usually your product owner, this is kind of their sweet spot, right? This viable section is, is usually what they can bring to the workshop. Desirability area is usually kind of the design sweet spot, everything to know about the customer to champion about the customer. And then at the very bottom is the feasibility section, which goes through what are all of the dependencies and the complexities um, or the, the risks that we have to think about with some of the solutions that we've just kind of jotted down at a very high level stage. And again, this is super high level. This is just early, early stages, but it's getting those that three-legged stool together early in exactly the way that you said, bring it, bring those engineers into the room for this conversation. They've probably never been 
in this type of, I don't know, workshop with, with the designer, with the product manager, and maybe design's never been in this workshop because it's usually product just solving it in a silo. And it was a really great moment to, um, we used to print them huge up, up on a, um, and then tack them up to the wall. And then I'd, I'd make people sort of physically stand up near them and we'd use kind of the post-it method. So, you know, you don't always have the loudest person in the room answering all the questions and then <clears throat> having a design operations person or, you know, in other places that may not have that function, maybe it's a, a project manager. Um, you need that kind of mediator, that sort of unbiased person to, to help keep the team focused um, because everybody just wants to jump into the solution space as well. Cause that's kind of like, Oh, it feels more comfortable there. Right. Like kind of in these other awkward areas where it's like the ambiguity and the unknown is, is not really comfortable, but it's really pushing the team to kind of sit in that, um, problem space longer and then allowing the tech team to be able to say, guys, this is sounding really either complicated expensive or maybe not the best way, you know, maybe not the best way. What about this? And it allows them to kind of help steer that feasibility really early so that, like you said, six weeks or however long down the line, tech's not given this solution and saying, we can't build this or, you know, this is not how I would have done that. And they have that moment to be able to feed into the whole process. So, so I'll loop back to something that we talked about right at the start, which is um, making sure that we're using the same language. Because mm. I know, um, look, I've worked with Graham for a while. Okay, I know he likes his his process and and this kind of thing. But when you when you use some models, of the words, not a process, process models, whatever. This is <laughs> this is kind of my right. This is kind of my point though, because when you use words like yeah, let's sit in the problem space. Uh, let's ideate. Let's mm-hmm. think about it. Those words turn engineers off. Like yeah. most of the time, they turn I engineers know. off. How do you deal with that? How do you, Fair. you know? No, that's a really good point. Um, you you need to get better at it. <laughs> you need to be called out. You need to... It's it's so hard to say you need this, but you need that psychological safety to be able to say that to one another. Um, and I think part of design ops role is also helping to create that psychological safety. So having that person to be able to mediate and say, hey, tech, does that word, do you, do you understand what that means? Or, hey, design, do you understand what that, because because engineering might use words that design has no idea or even product has no idea about. And product love to, to throw around acronyms. And I used to create like a parking lot uh, to the side of this whole thing and, and jot down things that people had questions about or wanted to solution or, or acronyms or, or things that were kind of weird. And you're right, finding that language and not having that exclusivity in using design terms or engineering terms is absolutely part of the process. It was something interesting in what you were saying, Sam, because we used to laugh about this, didn't we? We used to joke about the fact that I would say certain words and you would say certain words. And I think there I mean, was something in you. that, right? It was mainly you. <laughs> mainly Let's me, probably. Honest. I mean, I, I thought I was, I was always trying to be deliberate not to use those words where I could. But of course, when you're using a model for the first time, you're a bit more rigid about it. But it, when it, after a while, it becomes a little bit more loose. So, for example, design thinking, if you think about the double diamond, I don't need to tell people we're being divergent. I just say this puts more options down there. And th- that's exactly. a much more obvious exactly. way of talking about things. I guess this is a plea from me to, to everyone in your world. It's just, just tell us what you mean. Um, <laughs> we're, we're simple folk in engineering. We, you know, we we know our stuff, but we don't we don't want to get distracted yeah. by the language. We just we love solving problems, right? That's that's kind of what we do, um, and we like solving them with other people as well most of the time. So just let's let's just use kind of plain language and focus on the problem we're solving rather than the process. And I know that kind of goes against what we're talking about here you know, in, in the whole um, design ops is thinking about the process. But I, I think I'm saying 
it's more important not to care about that process and to just focus on the problem, right? I, I think you're I think you're bang on. Meaning part of design operations is also to create that environment where you're having inclusivity in the conversation. You're having inclusivity in the process and and in how you work. And inclusivity is absolutely not using language or terminology or acronyms that exclude parties from one another. So mm-hmm. being able to be sensitive and aware of those moments for the different disciplines is is crucial. Um, and is something that, you know, you, it, it takes practice, you need to get better at it. But if you can, as a design operations manager, or as anybody can help build that psychological safety so that you do feel comfortable, and you do feel okay, to call each other out on that is also really important. There's something interesting, because I, I think um, it, it isn't always, this isn't, obviously doesn't always land with the engineers, but often design could be the worst problem because sometimes we just want to sit behind a desk for nine to five hours and design great stuff. Why would we negotiate to product managers and engineers? We just want to design really great stuff for our users. So that can also be a big problem to overcome within a design community that somehow we need to find out how to be more inclusive and how to work and partner with with other teams. I mean, is it kind of the case that design ops, you know you've succeeded if no one notices? Is that is that a true yeah. statement? Yes. I mean, that's how I um that's how I would sort of know that I was ready to move on out of the different teams. Because yeah. I had so many teams to look after. I knew once they were, you know, running their stand ups and flicking through Jira without me and writing their stories and um, signing up for design reviews. I knew when they were able to just, when those wheels were greased and they were moving along on their own, then I could just pull myself out. You're absolutely right. It's like you want to do yourself out of a job. It's the, it's the same thing as a scrum master. You know, all of a sudden you're, you're not really needed anymore because everybody's just getting on with it. Right. Mm. So does that mean it doesn't necessarily have to be a full-time role for for an individual? It could just be a bunch of people in product UX and engineering kind of heard about this thing called design ops and they want to give it a go and they can try and build some of that into the, the, the daily operations of a team without there being a person dedicated to it. Um, I think what happens is the wheels do start to fall off and people start mm. to cut corners and people stop showing up to that meeting. Cause they think, well, we don't really need that meeting anymore. Cause we're just getting on with it now. So then the curve kind of starts to flatten a little bit. Right. Um, unless you have a really, really good design manager who can take all the tools and take all the process and the efficiencies and the insights and be able to, to champion that. And you need that advocate. So if you do have somebody that can kind of be your partner or your advocate and, and um, I guess, implement and kind of keep that, keep that healthy process going, then, yeah, you might kind of focus on different things. But mm. the cool thing about the design operations person is they, like I said, I kind of, and again, I wish I had this Venn diagram that I could show you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> darn it. Um, where you, you can flex out of that maybe that program management or portfolio management space. And now you can flex into the practice space, which is, you know, what are our design reviews look like? So as soon as the team started, you know, working really um, effectively with agile and and their systems and process and tools were all coming along, then I kind of started to look at, okay, how are we communicating even internally as a design community? So you can't forget also about how they connect back out to maybe the wider design org. So sometimes that would happen because we were so embedded in these cross-functional teams, we would almost forget to go back into the design community and share and learn and support one another. So design operations was also a, a nice little link back into the rest of the design org where we would look at how are we sharing Um how are we passing on new tools? Uh, we used to have this thing called What's Up Thursday, which was an hour long to an hour and a half long lunch 
where the entire 600 design org would all zoom in together. And it was, I mean, it was military run. It was amazing. There, you know, there were people that were actually like producing the content every week and hosting it. And, um, and there was like a soundtrack, you know, there was like a Spotify playlist that went for what's up Thursday. And it was so cool because it was a moment for the design teams to go, Oh yeah, we're, we're part of this like bigger it was called one design this part of one design org in community where i can learn about ai and i don't i don't really work on ai but like oh how cool is that or mm-hmm. i can learn about all the other things that are happening across this wider design org so even if your team is is high functioning within itself i think it needs to um yeah to get back to the rest of the community for for that insight and that knowledge and that kind of um, inspirational um, tap that they get with the rest of the community. You're so right. I, I mean, I've worked in teams where they are very efficient at working within cross-functional teams, but they forget about the foundational layer of design. Um, and sometimes that can be the design system or the things that are supposed to be consistent, and they're not. Um, so I, I wonder whether there is a tipping point where you have enough designers to do design ops, would you say that's true? Yes, um, there's definitely ratios. You know, we've I've I've been to design ops summits where they they look at the ratios of design ops people to design teams and designers. So um, yeah, th- there's definitely like a, a sweet spot for all of this as well. Mm. So that you don't overcook it and that you don't undercook it. Um, and I guess I've just been really lucky to have been in such a large organization to be able to kind of flex and scale and and takes things that are small like a little pilot and then be able to grow them um, across you know 85 odd people but you know now I'm at a startup where it's just me a UI guy and a UXer and uh, and five engineers so it I'm in like a totally different environment now uh, yeah. um, and I'm not even a design operations manager anymore either. So, so, <laughs> but, but it's the same principles, right? It's, it's, yeah. the, it's the, like you said earlier, Graham, it's the, the connectivity, um, the, the kind of glue in between everything um, and making sure that we're all aligned to the same uh, kind of goals. So there must be, there must be some parallels with um, DevOps. I mean, I, I'm yes. not, close to devops particularly i've, I've worked in um, businesses that have devops teams and sam you you probably know that world better than i do but but from from a slightly outsider's point of view it, it feels and sounds quite a lot like that in that a lot of people say they do it and don't actually do it <laughs> is that because i think if you have and i you know i'm gonna be self-critical here because i i manage a devops team as part of my area but i do kind of think this statement is true that if you have a devops team you're kind of not really doing devops um with exception if if all the people in that team are developers and, and write code then you are but i don't know it's an interesting parallel i don't think we've got time to cover it to be honest because i would <laughs> probably talk as long as we've already gone <laughs> Uh, around that so maybe it's a good topic for a future podcast yeah we need uh, to find a devops, DevOps. person yeah what is it yeah. does that mean yeah. i get product ops at some point in the future <laughs> is is there product ops yes there is there is i'll just google oh. it there is actually do you know what because we <clears throat> because we actually um started to to scale our design ops team from two of us to now there's nine of us um in that current space our product partners started to look at what we were doing and said, wow, we need that too. However, product ops can almost kind of become like, um, um, <clears throat> excuse Program me. management. Yeah. <clears throat> or, um, oh, what's the word? You're going to have to edit this out. But um, what are they called? A Like a, uh, you know, where they kind of work on the, why is it escaping me? Is it because it's six in the morning? Um <laughs> Probably, yeah. You'd probably get a pass for that, to be honest. <laughs> we'll put it in the bloopers. <laughs> the bloopers. Um, they become kind of that that uh, pipeline kind of function of work, right? Like the, the mm. delivery. Um, what do they call the... Oh, 
I can't remember the word. It will come back to you after It'll this come podcast, back to you I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yes, there is a product ops function and, um, and, and they do work very similarly. Ours actually works on a, um, an education system. So like a product university in a way to make sure that product is actually building product um, in the best way possible so that they are, because you do start to get product designers or sorry, product managers and product owners from all over the world. And when they come in, they kind of just do it how they want to do it. So they, the product ops, ops team is created um, almost like a little university where they, they just kind of bed in the foundations of, of product design and development and, and the process so that they get more of that uniformity and that um, consistency in, in the way they, they build things. Interesting. Awesome. Guys, I think we will wrap up. Um, thank you ever so much, Daphne, for coming on on this on this show. Uh, that was a fascinating fascinating talk, um, and I feel like I know more about design ops now, which is great. Um, cool. So, thank you, everyone who's listening. Um, just so, before we go, please subscribe to the podcast. Um, we are on Spotify, we're on Apple, we're on Google. I think we're on many others as well. Castbox, I think we're on as well. To be honest, Amazon have announced they've got podcasts now. Have they really? I'll have they to look have. into that. Yeah. I know, I think I was trying to get us on Pandora the other day, but I had a few problems with that. But we, <laughs> I'm trying to get us on many, as many as possible. So, yeah, please subscribe and you will get, uh, obviously, the follow-ups to this. And hopefully we'll have someone from DevOps on one of the future Ooh. episodes to compare and contrast with this. Yeah, I feel um, like I just want to make the point. Um, we've not had any engineering guests yet. We need to step up on that front. No offense, yeah. Daphne. Um, but I'm feeling quite outnumbered. I, I, I do feel bad for you, Sam. And we, we, I promise you, we will get engineering people on. In fact, I've got just the person who will be coming on soon um, and should be quite an exciting person to speak to, someone who interacts very closely with designers. Cool. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, I'll see me. you in the next you're you're very welcome and, and thank you for coming on and we're really proud to have you all the way from australia although it makes no difference in the online world these days but uh thank you for coming on um and we will see you in the next episode thank you very much